Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's early June 2020 in Berkeley, California, and even I'm, a, I have to admit, a little lost for words, given what's happening in the world alongside COVID-19. Now we have what appears to be, in some ways at least, a political insurrection in the United States. Uh, And who better to talk to at a time where I'm lost for words, and I'm sure many of you, than John Freeman. John Freeman is a prolific author, and he's the author uh, particularly of of a really interesting book from last year called Dictionary of the Undoing, which he describes as a lexicon of engagement, a lexicon of meaning. It's a book about words and a book about politics. Uh, John... um, you wrote your book last year, but you're really writing it for June 2020, aren't you? You must have known something. Could you see into the future when you were writing Dictionary of the Undoing? I think, uh, like everyone, I felt it moving beneath my feet, you know, that we were in the middle of a, a crisis in reality, uh, as well as a crisis in politics. One that was, to me, driven by the, the sort of incredible assault that we were witnessing on norms and values and the words that that usually encapsulated those things and primarily donald trump was at the the tip of that spear but there have been other parts of of world world politics and other forces that have been slowly chipping away at at shared meaning Um, this is something you've written about quite a bit just about the way that we've flattened the world of information by allowing all points to be of equal value. And as a result, nothing seems to mean anything. Um, And when that happens, we can't communicate with each other. We can't form groups and we can't sort of defend our values against uh, the assault on on them, which in, in our times has come from quote unquote populist governments. And so I, I felt like it was time to step back and not react to statement, but to to try to define a few words I felt like still had value and meaning if I could only sort of isolate them from uh, the sort of tilt-a-whirl of, of spectacle and, and outrage. You uh, you argue that words you write in the book, uh, in, in Dictionary of the Undoing, words are what connect us. And you choose 26 words for, for the book, from A to Z. How did you choose these words? W- w- what drove you to to, to, to build a book, to write a book around 26 words? I think it was a feeling of immense frustration that I was trying to collect and collate information by watching media, participating in social media, and realizing that even if I spent my entire day doing this, I still couldn't create a coherent sense of reality. And I realized at some point that by surfing Facebook and watching the news and you know responding to things on Twitter that I... I wasn't, um, I, I wasn't creating um, a, a reality I could live in. I was 
I was basically creating apathy because I, I felt just powerless to do anything. Um, and so I, I, I wrote a, a piece, um, which I ended up, of course, <laughs> posting on Facebook as a goodbye to Facebook on, on how information was creating apathy or information as we deemed it. And, um, and that led me to thinking about what, you know, what, what is really the, the, the core um, you know, receiver of, of information that we have in our lifetimes and it's our body. And I wrote a essay about the body. And by the time I got to the end of the body, thinking about what a body is and what it means in a digital world, I, I thought, well, that, that's very closely connected to what a citizen is. And within a few days I had, I'd gone through a few letters by almost by accident and then realized I was starting to write something if only maybe even for myself, just to sort of get to the bottom of how, you know, the source code of reality was, was broken and that I had to, the, the way to fix it was to, to step back and try to think clearly, independently, alone uh, about the meaning of words that were important to me. As I said, the book is remarkably prescient. Uh, your P word, for example, is police. Why did you choose police? Well, I... I'd spent the past couple of years going to protests against violence against, uh, that the police had committed, usually against unarmed um, African-American civilians. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've grown up in a body of a white guy named John Freeman with pretty, you know, standard settings as, as, as to what's supposed to be normal. And I've been harassed by the police and I've been cornered by the police and, you know, vaguely tortured as a teenager. Uh, and I say that, um, you know, and not jokingly, but not, it certainly wasn't fun. And I think if that happened to me, what must, must it be like? And we know what it's like because it's been filmed. And that, di- that digest that we get every 26 hours of a different, in this country, in the United States, uh, unarmed usually, uh, black civilian being killed or murdered by by the police, it, it creates a climate of fear and terror, and it has done for for a long time. And the the words "citizen" and "liberty" and optimism and freedom they mean nothing if you if you don't address what the word "police" means. You um, what's I'm not sure if it's missing, but I'm curious if you were writing the book now, might you? Ch- change a couple of the words b for b you have body and for r you have rage uh you argue that rage is wasted online and i know you treat rage as as much a problem as a solution but if you were writing the book in june 2020 might you change b for body to b for black and r for rage to r for racism that's a very good question i don't know if i would change b um change b but Racism is uh, is so clearly one of the, the fundamental um, diseases of our society that's contagious and passed along, and so clearly uh, has been at the root of all the f- failures of American life. Um, and you know, I meant to write this book towards the world, not just from America. And racism exists in many, many other parts of the world, but it, it comes in so many different sizes. Like, would you call the way that the, 
the Romani are treated in Romania as racism. I, I, I don't know. And you, you went to university in Sarajevo. I, I think what, what, what role would racism have in the breakup of the former Yugoslavia? Um, and, and so I was trying to choose words that, uh, that could travel to some degree. And, and to me, rage is, a, is, a, is more fundamental um, than to some degree racism. Uh, and, and yet, you know, one of the things I, I hoped by publishing this book is that I would, you know, not encourage other people to make their own, but at least get other people to think about what their own words might be. And I've, I've found, you know, in teaching the exercise, not my own book, it's really productive. I had students in NYU make their own dictionaries. And one student made a, a collection of stories in which each word was an object. Another student who was trans created a dictionary of, of terms that would help someone who wasn't familiar with anyone who was who identified as trans, you know, understand what it meant. Uh, and so I, I think there are many different ways to go about making a book like this. And, you know, I tried to pick for me the, the words that enlarge the most, but I, I think someone else might choose exactly those words, as you say. Maybe we should rename the book portable, a portable dictionary of the undoing or a personal dictionary. Um, the book is beautifully written. Uh, it's poetic. It's it's musical. You, you write about rusted bits of language and broken words. It sounds like a sort of Dylan song in many ways. Um, but some people might read it and think, well, this is very literary. It's very poetic. It's very moving and emotional. But where's the politics here? Where is the concrete ways in which books like this are actually going to change the world? How are you going to how are you going to, to, to turn this dictionary of the undoing into actually ad addressing a world where you say something's very wrong with the world, we are living through, I'm quoting you here, we're living through one of the greatest transfers of wealth and power in human history, uh, and there have been virtually no riots. Now, we're kind of living through an age maybe where there have been some riots, although that word itself is political. Um, but is your book, in a way, a, a manifesto, or is it a kind of pre-manifesto? I think it's a wake-up call to myself and, and hopefully to others that to make a better politics, we have to be careful about the concepts and the language that we use. And, and we can do that by not reacting. We can do that by looking at the words that are right in front of us and not choosing um, as the playing field, say, the term set by our current politics, because those are clearly broken. Uh, and we've watched that in many different forms, whether it's, you know, police re reform or um, what happens after the banking crisis or, you know, gradually you, you realize that all the so-called blue sky in a, a sphere that needs to be overhauled has been slowly chipped away by the terms of the debate. And so I was trying to use words that returned us to a very uh, fundamental sort of unit of a person in a body uh, trying to figure out how they fit into the world. And to me, that's pre-politics. Uh, that it's it, This is, to me, a, a kind of renovation of the terms that we use before we kind of assemble uh, a, new, a new form of politics. And I, 
I, cause I think a lot of the political systems we live in are broken and we need to find ways to exist outside of them with, uh, you know, with decency and, and fairness and days that are full of hope and that days that are full of rage and that we have to be able to live together to do that. And I think in order to, to, uh, maybe renovate the ways that we exist in those liminal spaces, we have to, we have to think about what matters to us outside of group mentalities. And I think one thing that's changed in the last 15, 10 years is that so much is done panoptically, you know, the revolution won't just be televised, it'll be tweeted and then everyone will watch what each other is thinking and retweet it. And I, I, I think we, we get it just as much from stepping back and being alone with our thoughts. What are your thoughts uh, in terms of the struggle, the, the language war that's going on in early June between the president and his administration and much of the rest of the country about actually identifying the current situation? Well, the president's, his MO, his, his playbook has been to deny reality and define it simply through repetition, which we know in cognitive studies, does can be very effective. You simply can just lie your way through many problems and basically convince people through ubiquity that what they see isn't right in front of them, um, especially if you degrade the terms with which they can describe it. And I, I think that 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 uh, he maybe isn't hasn't been as effective as he hopes in winning that sort of language war, but he certainly created this intense, ever-present fog in which we've, we're not in real, we're in a kind of irreal state that's, that's so perpetually mediated in front of us that we, we have difficulty describing uh, what we're, we're going through. And, and the world of verifying isn't helping because we're constantly filming things to say this happened. And yet the, the, the world that we gather are, and try to make a coherent reality from the internet is is turning so fast that it dissolves in front of us. So I, I think the the president's strategy has been amazingly effective to uh, to push policies which are wildly unpopular to um, to basically bully his way through a pandemic and. Uh, deny the terms uh, of the federal government and you know the constitution is a document um and he's misread that document over and over and over again and found presumably through his advisors as many loopholes as possible to expand executive power so for me the the language isn't just you know this bodily source code in which i be i become a unit that's functioning in society. It's also, a, it's fundamental to civic life. And because the president is, is degrading its use constantly in word clusters and calling names and using words against their actual meaning, um, like love or, 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 or hate <laughs> or terrific, or uh, he's, he's making it impossible for there to be a kind of purchase on everyday life. And so the, the, even in a world where we're getting lots and lots of reporting about events, which we're witnessing, it still seems to 
the meaning of it seems to elude us because it's, it's constantly being glossed with this um, word frosting that is disassociated from its meaning. Yeah, there, there, there will be several books, I'm sure, uh, which focus on a linguistic analysis of, of, of Trump's America. The word he uses, one word he uses all the time, which I'm always intrigued with, is, is, is horrible. Uh, John, you, uh, you've mentioned the Internet a couple of times. You, a few years ago, I actually reviewed this book, an excellent book. You wrote a book called The, the Tyranny of Email. Um, we know that Trump is a liar. We know that he has distorted and corrupted language in, 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 in the way in which autocrats have done historically. What about the role of the Internet, of Twitter and Facebook? Are they helping? Are they compounding the rusting of language? Are they, by definition, the, the online world, is it by definition breaking words? Is it the problem or is it the solution? I think it's neither. I mean, I think the problem with both of those uh, units of, of the internet is that they, they create self-selecting cones of, of reality in which the words used within them so rarely uh, because of the algorithms which drive them, leave those cones. You know, it's very difficult to get something that I say on my feed into a feed of someone who subscribes to views that are very different than mine. And so my version, say, of, of, of love or the environment or uh, the idea of what a question is, doesn't reach uh, the person who has a different idea of that because they subscribe to different media. And to me, that's, that's the bigger problem with um, uh, Twitter and Facebook and language. Uh, it's not that because it's shortened characters and there's no fact checking and people tend to um, speak casually and not in complete sentences all the time. And so the, the language is, is closer to spoken language than it is to written language. That's sort of interesting on a separate, you know, sort of stream. What's most distressing to me is that it creates alternate realities for people, and that makes it impossible for us to to have a stable meaning, even just to basic words that we use in our everyday life. And so you'll notice in my book, I step back a lot and and into the life of just a person in a body with a family. And I think about what it's like to be a child learning language all over again, because that's when I think the biggest set of uh, question and answers are posed to us. And we start to begin to get definitions for what things are. And my hope is that our, our moment and what we're witnessing, you know, causes us to, to question more the definition, the basic definitions of things. And I, one reason I like your show and other shows like it is is that they do that fundamentally. They ask us to 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 basically examine our our assumptions. You're writing essentially about language and politics. Are there a couple of books, historic texts about politics that you think people might read alongside your book, uh, Orwell perhaps, or a rent to particularly popular and influential 20th century political thinkers who, who, who write prolifically about language and politics? Yeah, the two of them were immensely um, influential to me as, as a young person growing up and realizing that the, the words that you used um, 
mattered um, in a political sphere. I'd also say James Baldwin um, has been a big one uh, because I think Baldwin, more, more than Orwell and Arendt, is able to use the tone and sound of his voice. Um, he's able to, you know, in books like The Fire Next Time, to kind of channel the, the register of intimacy of a letter into redefining the terms of a revolution, basically. And that's, that's to, to me where American new journalism um, meets the sort of continental philosophy and, and, um, and pacifism of, of, of Arendt and, and Orwell. And it, it, it means that our political sphere went, took a step forward um, and right now, I think the book that has meant the most to me is, is uh, Masha Gessen's Surviving Autocracy, because she's able to describe how the terms of our politics have meant we've been unprepared for the way that the Trump administration was going to test the very limits of democracy in this country. And that the, the way that we define our politics is, is incorrect. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.